You know, I don't know if anyone has ever used this, but because I'm a woman, I'm going to say it. Maybe SPACs are like doulas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, leading you through the, yes. through the birth. <laughs> right? Through, through the public markets. And then, you know, it was really up to the family. It's up to you. It's because we believe in a company that will be there. Um, that's probably not a great pitch. I'm not going to put that in my deck. <laughs> I'm just testing it out on you guys. Yeah, now that I'm sort of <laughs> yeah. like thinking about it. Not in the marketing deck? Okay. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. Our guest this week is Seattle-based entrepreneur Jane Park, the CEO of Athena Consumer Acquisition Corporation, which is a new special purpose acquisition company, or SPAC, that just raised $230 million in an initial public offering on the New York Stock Exchange. A former Starbucks executive, she founded and led Julep Beauty, a physical retail chain and e-commerce brand, before starting sustainable gift wrap company, Toki. She's also a board member of the Washington State Opportunity Scholarship, which is having its 2021 Opportunity Talks breakfast coming up on November 9th at 8 a.m. virtually. Jane Park, it is great to have you here. <laughs> so great to be here. So you are obviously somebody we've talked to over the years. In fact, I was looking back, I think you were the 2014 or 2013 CEO of the year at the GeekWire Awards with Julep. I know. I'm actually just looking at my Atari award right now. It's on my shelf. Oh, that's when we back. We used to have the joystick and then we yes. switched to the robot. So yes, you've got <laughs> one of the old school uh, trophies there. So we've talked to you for many years and covered you for many years. In fact, I was just looking back at Taylor Soper's coverage of everything you went through with Julep, but you're really doing something fascinating right now. What can you tell us just as a starting point about Athena and everything that you're doing with this new SPAC? Because these are hot right now, very much in the news. Yes. When you first met me, didn't you think, there goes a future SPAC CEO? <laughs> I don't think we knew the term SPAC. Yeah, when we right. wasn't even invented. Yes. I was invented, but it just wasn't used as a financial instrument. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so your surprise is probably uh, equal to mine. But uh, what I'm excited about with Athena is that it's actually a group of amazing women who have come together. Isabel Friedheim called me and, you know, it took some convincing a little bit. I wasn't sure if I had the right capabilities. I have always sat on the entrepreneur side. So to be on the acquiring money side is a new perspective and, and vantage point for me. But what has motivated me throughout my career and actually really motivated the step. I don't think I would have taken the call if it wasn't the fact that it was an all-female SPAC. So the management team is phenomenal. Uh, actually, local Seattle, Angie Smith from Zulily is our CFO. And uh, Jen Carr-Smith, who's chairman of the board of Blue Apron, is our president and COO. So I'm just working with a phenomenal group of women. And the generation above, too, um, Kay Klopovich, who founded USA Networks. Actually, I love the fact that she was the one who discovered Don Johnson. And I said that to Miami Vice Don Johnson. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. Said, now you're going way back in the history books. We, we just lost maybe, you know, 70% of our audience. I know, right? Like, 
I just killed any coolness you could possibly have on this. No, podcast. that's very not cool. for us. <laughs> that's cool for us. Yeah, she, her, uh, she started her career discovering Don Johnson, built the USA Network, and uh, then sold it. So, just incredible women with a diverse background. The founder of Guilt. Just it's it's such an amazing thing to get on the conference call every week, every day with these women, and it's so collaborative. There's really no BS, um, no drama. It's just a joy to get to know these people. So Jane with SPACs, which our audience probably knows a little bit about, you basically have a two-year clock ticking where you can now go out and use this money you've raised to go acquire, I guess in, you, in this case, you're looking at a more of a consumer retail style brand. So what is it about SPACs that makes it kind of interesting to go out and acquire a new company? Is there a specific thing you're looking for? Yeah, as compared to an IPO from the company side, it's just a more certain negotiation where you're not reliant on the forces that might be out there uh, in the market on the day of your IPO. So it's more of a negotiated, rational strategy. It's also with people that hopefully that they appreciate that we bring an operator's perspective. You're not dealing with investment bankers. You're dealing with uh, three people on the management team of our, of our SPAC in particular who are operators who know what it's like to grow a company between us. We've grown consumer brands. We've sold consumer brands. We've been on public companies of uh, incredible consumer brands. So it's a different perspective that we bring to the table and understanding what an entrepreneur, what a team is going through in going public, that it's not just that moment in time. It's a moment in growth. And we understand that better than anyone. So I think that's sort of what is different for a company going public via SPAC. It's also the fact that we can look at more than what companies can show in a typical roadshow in a typical IPO. So uh, I think it's ex extraordinarily outdated that uh, we can't look at sort of what the company is projecting into the future. These days, the amount of time that a company stays in the S&P 500 has more than halved compared to, you know, the 80s, right? Um, when Don Johnson was on TV. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Miami Vice. I'm, I'm, I'm loving the right? Miami Vice references. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Jane, I'm curious, you know, obviously you've got a really powerful women-led team here behind Athena, and that's on the buy side. When you're looking at a target, so an acquisition, a company you're going to buy. Are you also looking specifically at female-led teams to acquire, or does that matter to you? We're looking for really great management teams. Look, the truth of the matter is that it's really unfortunate that there are not as many women-led companies in the unicorn billion-dollar ready-to-go-public stage as there should be. You guys know that only 2% of venture funds go to women-led companies. And so how do you get that at the funnel? That's what we're dealing with. Uh, so yes, we would love to work with a phenomenal team. It would be a huge bonus if it was 
run by a woman and uh, uh, we would love to kind of extend what we're doing on gender equality and how we think about the world. But it, that's definitely not a defining characteristic. So Isabel Friedheim took Athena Technology. That was her first generation SPAC public uh, with Heliogen and that CEO, Bill Gross, that's a company funded by Bill Gates. You know, he is a man. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's Tom not- wrote about him, I think, yeah, uh, okay. a couple of years this ago. This is a fascinating technology. They basically take big mirrors and use AI to intelligently focus the rays of the sun in such a way that they can power these huge industrial plants and applications that would take like coal and other real polluting things to to power normally. So it's an environmental play. So it's it's obviously something that's altruistic in a different way. But more to your point, Jane, he's obviously a man. And so I guess that means that in your case, you're looking far and wide for, for the best leaders, regardless of gender, even though I have a hunch, all things being equal, you would pick a team of women over a team of men. Well, we've, uh, I, you know, we're not disclosing a lot, but uh, I think a uh, female or Canadian. <laughs> <We've> had... <laughs> and we should say, Jane, you're from Toronto. So yeah, exactly. Uh, there have been a guy just uh, in the first uh, set of conversations. Uh, you look, we just went public last Friday. So this is all very new. What is today? Thursday. It's not a week yet. So we're in the very beginning stages, but uh, uh, either sort of uh, an open mind and very rigorous and awesome management team is what we're looking for. And Jane, we should also note that you are believed to be the first Korean American woman to bring a company public on the New York Stock Exchange. John and I were just sharing a link between us of a wonderful and touching essay that you wrote about your mom immigrating into to Canada. And obviously, you've since come to the United States here in Seattle. Talk about that moment and that milestone and what it means to you and your family. I know, right? Just today, we did a little test. I was insisting that we have my parents behind us on the screen. So I'm going to go to New York on Monday. We're ringing the bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, cool. And yeah, and they gave us uh, some Zoom links because it, everything is hybrid these days. So we're going to be there in person. But my parents are going to be behind me. And so I'm really excited for that. I think in the Seattle community, when people talk about my, ask me about my entrepreneurial journey, I always say when I told them I was leaving Starbucks to start Julep that my parents cried. <laughs> they were like, oh no, another Korean starting a nail business. What will we tell our oh, friends? <laughs> we told them you went to law school and that you were doing well in business. <laughs> Uh, so fast forward to now, they've just been extraordinarily supportive as my whole family has been. When we were um, doing QVC at Julep, I had my sister come and do some of the on-air appearances with me. So it's really been a family-supported affair. And it's super meaningful to have me ringing the bell to have that visual step. It's another reason why I wanted to take on this role and this challenge is so that the visual and the actual statistical sort of importance of what we're doing is is out there. 
you know, my dad was uh, an orphan. Um, when all of the stuff recently was happening with our borders, it really made me think about what it means to be separated because he w- was walking home from school one day and he was on the South side and his parents were on the North and he hasn't seen them ever again. Uh, and since he was nine and he was taking care of his sister who was six and she would cry at night and ask for her, um, for her parents. And, you know, he had to just figure things out. He said he dug up sweet potatoes that were left over from farming, the ones that the farmers hadn't found in some way. And they dug it up out of the ground. And that's what they ate during the winter, frozen sweet potato. And so for somebody like that, to see his daughter achieve something like this. It's just in two generations. It is really meaningful for, for him. And it took a lot of sacrifice and hard work on, on their part. It was, you know, they ran a convenience store. I didn't really realize growing up the Seven Eleven actually means seven days a week, 11 hours a day. So, <laughs> and that's the time you're open. Never mind going to shop for the things, uh, cleaning, counting cash, all the other things that have to happen outside of the open hours when it's just the two of you. It was just my parents running the convenience store. So there was a lot of sacrifice that went into making it possible for me. I mean, I didn't speak English when I first came to Canada. Um, That's where we immigrated. And uh, so to go from that to, you know, to where I am today. I mean, it's so funny. My parents still think that I speak English with an accent. They're like, people can tell you weren't born here. I'm like, I'm pretty sure. So everybody listening. Because podcast, you're Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, there you go. Jane, how, that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Jane, how do you think that experience, and you do hear about this a lot with entrepreneurs that have, have grown up with, with immigrant parents, how do you think that has shaped your own personal entrepreneurial journey? I think one of the most important constructs you have in your mind as an immigrant is that you can travel through different worlds. And once it's possible for there to be more than one world, then you can make up your own rules. So that is the the most important thing that at home, there was a whole different set of rules than there were at school. Like I wasn't allowed to go see movies. Uh, When I said the multiplication table, which I don't know why I had to do this, but my parents would time me doing the multiplication table and I wasn't allowed to say times or equals. I had to go two, two, four, two, three, six, two, four, eight. <laughs> and then they would time me and see if I got faster the next day, right? <laughs> it's like little things like that, that uh, the rules inside my house were so different than the rules outside my house that I had to develop some translation muscles pretty early to say both of these worlds can be true. Both are valid. Both are amazing and flawed in their own ways. And once you can grok that, then you can start thinking about an entrepreneurial journey because you can think about, well, you know, how do I want my world to be? Uh, if I, I, I can take the things out of this and the things out of that and a little pinch over here and a scrape of that and put together your own life. And that's how you can put together your own company too. Jane, I referenced that essay earlier that you wrote about your mom, and there's a wonderful anecdote that you share there about going to the library and 
eating a, a bologna sandwich. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. <laughs> as you did your math and you wanted to be just close enough to the librarian that your mom would know that you were safe, but far enough away that the librarian wouldn't catch you eating in a place you wouldn't be. And the librarian kind of gave you a wink and a nod. And you wrote that that was your first experience with allyship, uh, women looking out for other women or people looking out for women and, and others. And I, I thought that was just really great. We'll, we'll link to that essay from, oh. from the show notes too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, allyship comes from a lot of different places and definitely you too and GeekWire has been amazing, but it is, it's important to sort of be helpful wherever you can. And that librarian, my goodness, I think these days they would have called Child Protective Services, right? Like there's this <laughs> kid being dropped off for free babysitting. I would be dropped off at nine in the morning and picked up at five on a Saturday as a four-year-old. And, you know, I mean, my kids, oh my gosh, like they would be bored. They would, they would not put up with that. <laughs> So maybe I wasn't so imaginative after all in terms of putting together my world. <laughs> By the way, we recorded this conversation on Thursday, October 28th, prior to some of the events that Jane is referencing. So by the time you hear this, she has already rung the bell on the New York Stock Exchange. Coming up next, we will talk about one of Jane's other ventures, which involves sustainable gift wrap and QR codes. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. Our guest this week is Jane Park, the Seattle-based entrepreneur known for her work at Julep Beauty and also with Toki. And she currently is the CEO of Athena Consumer Acquisition Corp., which is a new SPAC that just raised $230 million in an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. Jane, I do want to ask you about Toki. This is a really cool idea, and it gets to some of the consumer roots and the consumer interests that you have can you catch us up on where you are with this? Because you did an interesting pivot during the pandemic, but but the original idea and still the, the fundamental idea is sustainable gift wrap. Right. Where does this stand? <laughs> uh, thankfully, I have a phenomenal team with me. And, you know, as I was uh, launching Athena Consumer, I just said to them, look, what I really kind of want to be is a board member and a uh, as somebody who is helping pioneer this effort, but also to support the next generation of women. So we're an all-women team at Toki as well. And I'm working with a phenomenal co-founder, Taylor Hoyt, who uh, I work with at Julep. So I'm kind of trying to stay out of their way and let them do their magic and uh, and just try to be supportive a as much as I can. This company is amazing. Um, we are patent pending on the technology, but it 
the the thing that we have loved from our julep days is that intersection of a physical product and a digital experience. So I think some consumer magic happens when those things come together, right? So you can email somebody a video, but what if you gave someone a present that had a QR code with a video of your baby or your grandchildren saying <laughs> happy holidays or the puppy that uh, my son misses, our dog. <laughs> but uh, that the present can show up with a photo or video through the QR card. And then um, the idea is it's like a sisterhood of the traveling gift bow that it goes from person to person. If I gave it to John, I would have a message that says, oh my gosh, I appreciate you so much. <laughs> And then John would give it to Todd, and I, I don't know what I don't his message would say. I don't do gifts. I'm I'm out of the gift giving business, so oh, it would just it would just, it would just end with me. I think I just <laughs> got like a pair of great Geekwire socks, so I know you gift these. Yes, so okay. you would send socks to Todd with the toki bow, and it would say, <laughs> "Hope your feet stay warm." And then you know Todd would hand it off to Kurt, and he would uh, say he would he's a better gifter, so maybe he would give him like a bottle of. Uh, bourbon and say, you know, <laughs> there we go. All right. How thank you, you know, for, <laughs> right. Thank, I'm just the gift whisperer. Uh, thank you for, for all of your hard work and support. And so in that way, we're saving some gift wrap from going into the trash. So most gift wrap isn't recyclable because it's too color coded or saturated or thin or adorned. And, you know, this is low hanging fruit, right? I think that's how we get started. My VP of marketing, Karen Combs at, uh, uh, Julep used to say, on the way to solving world hunger, like when we have a big gnarly technology problem or a customer, a new product launch or something, she's like, on the way to solving world hunger, let's just get some healthy snacks on the table for now. <laughs> And so I think about it like that. I think about that phrase every day in so many different contexts, but I definitely think about it with Toki too. There's so many different ways we can fight climate change and we are um, doing 1% for the climate and carbon neutral. But on top of that, um, and our bows are made with recycled water bottles, which is super cool. But I think it's about changing our behavior little by little. And one thing we wanted to do was to make it fun, not just make it a chore. It's interesting with the Toki bow card because it is a QR code based technology tied to a physical bow. And Jane, I'm just curious because, I mean, QR codes have kind of come into their own here during the pandemic. Every restaurant you go to now, you're launching your men menu via QR code. How do you think just the adoption rate now with this old school technology might drive aspects of your business? I am so excited for that. You know, there has been really obviously nothing good about the pandemic. Nobody would sign up for this. But one thing that has happened is that people are using QR codes. At the beginning, you know, our half of our website was explaining how to use a QR code. We literally had step one, take out your phone and go to the camera app. Step two, <laughs> hold it up to the code. And people were like, nah, I, you know, I've got to download an app to do this, right? And it's like, no, it's in your phone. Trust me. And so many people didn't. They were like, no, my phone doesn't do that. I've never done that before. And so to go from that, where in a social poll we did, about 10% of people pre-pandemic were using QR codes. 
And now I haven't even bothered to go repeat that uh, survey because I am 100% sure that the answer would be 100%, at least of the people who are scrolling Instagram. 100% of those people know how to use a QR code. And only 10% of them did, uh, of our audience did about a year and a half ago. And your team also just recently had a blog post on on the Toki site about your integration with Amazon and basically saying Amazon isn't always the bad guy in small business. And so talk about how you're leveraging Amazon with this product, because it seems, as Todd and I were talking before we jumped on here, it seems there's some pretty interesting integrations you could see between your company and Amazon if they adopted this at a, at a wide scale. But how do you see the environment with Amazon, which sometimes does get labeled as that bad guy in business? I know. <laughs> do you think Do you think Andy Jassy is listening? And, yes, uh, he listens to, to every episode. We know, Jane. I'm sure he is. We track his usage of the Geek Wire <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Turnabout's uh, fair play. <laughs> yeah, look, uh, you know, even big companies are made up of um, – you know, of people who make a difference. And part of actually what got us on Amazon was this amazing guy who reached out, Bobby Co reached out to me and said, Hey, we really think you belong on Amazon and we want to help you grow your business. So we're actually a part of an internal pilot. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. They didn't say I couldn't. <laughs> so, uh, uh, we, blame us, Jane. Just yeah, blame exactly. Us. They really put the screws on me. What, what's the pilot for? Like for cultivating small businesses exactly. on Amazon? Yeah. So they've been really helpful uh, and been sort of holding our, you know, our hands and in, in launching there every step of the way. So obviously there are super interesting integrations that are possible. That's why I'm so passionate about this idea, the idea of sending out a gift and making it more meaningful. That all came together too a lot more during COVID. I wanted people to gift in a way that, you know, if you can't show up at a doorstep of your aunt or your friend or that person's wedding you were going to attend, how can you show up with your gift and have it have a more emotional, meaningful connection? There's nothing like video that drives that, right? There's nothing like having a video of, uh, of, you know, someone or some things or some place that you love that helps connect you and make any kind of mug or, you know, a pound of coffee or whatever it might be, it can make anything more meaningful. For people who want to check this out, the search would be T-O-K-K-I, Toki. And it looks like the primary product now, Jane, is the the bow card. So this idea being that you can create a video message. The person who receives the gift with the bow attached can scan the QR code and see the video message. But there's also still this whole idea of sustainable gift wrap, reusable gift wrap on the, the Toki site. But it seems like the bow card, which is available right now, at least on Amazon for $9.99, $9.99, is the, the primary focus of the team. It is. It is the way that we want people to gift that it is actually gift wrap too, because you can put it on a bag or you can, you know, take anything really in our house. We've used everything from sheets to pillowcases to just a craft bag with a bow on it. It's to that signifies like, look, I'm not just sticking it in a regular bag, but I actually am being thoughtful 
about the way I'm gifting. And it, it makes it super fun too, to look back over a year of um, using a toki. So, you know, to see the message from Mother's Day and Father's Day and my birthday and my husband's birthday, it's, it's really great that you can keep all of those in an album and have those, those um, gifts kind of live on. To your point, Jane, I felt a little sheepish. We delivered a tote bag, a GeekWire tote bag to your place. We had it delivered with a microphone for this podcast, and I included a couple of pieces of GeekWire swag. And I realized afterward, if I had truly been on the ball, I would have thought to have gotten a bow card and done that. But, you know, that would have been a little over the top and perhaps a little extra. <laughs> we were talking before we joined with Jane here because one of your big pivots during the pandemic was shifting to mass sales. And Todd and I still have our Toki masks that we love wearing. So we should have those on here, too. That's great. Well, you know, uh, we donated uh, 200,000 face masks to the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance here with the sales of those masks that was supported by you guys. So thank you for being part of that effort. Really, it wasn't about making money on that at all. It was really just saving jobs and trying to put more masks out in the community at a time when they didn't exist. When we were making those face masks, it was really hard to get your hands on anything decent, period, and definitely nothing that was sort of a beautiful print. So we took all of the high-quality cotton that we had bought to make reusable gift bags and we just turned them into face masks and we uh you know wanted to do something in the pandemic instead of doing nothing so that was how we survived the past year <laughs> jane i want to transition for a bit here because you've been involved in consumer brands for so long one of the big trends we've been watching at geekwire what we call the rise of these these amazon aggregators these companies that are going out and buying amazon sellers they could potentially buy a company like Toki if you get a lot of traction on Amazon. I'm curious what you make of this business model of going out and aggregating all these different Amazon sellers and then trying to essentially supercharge them. We just saw Thrasio raised a billion dollars at a $10 billion valuation. So, and that's just one of you know a few dozen of these uh, aggregators out there. What do you make of that given your consumer retail experience? Look, consumer businesses are so hard. <laughs> there are a lot of details that go into every step of the way. And, uh, you know, it's so interesting to me as I learn more about Amazon that we all know that they're a powerhouse in operations and distribution. As I've sort of played around on the back end, there's some definitely, how do I say this in a, in a way that is partnership feedback oriented and hopefully everybody there has a growth mindset <laughs> you know it's uh, uh it's like wow this is one of the world's most foremost tech companies too um but really like there there there's so many details right so there's so much you have to be excellent at in order to deliver a consumer good or experience in a delightful way and so i think there might be room to just be operationally excellent. You know, we've led with wanting that, but also a brand, right? I don't think those aggregators are right for anything that has the heart of a consumer as a brand that isn't a play for the aggregator. It's really about 
operating excellence in the marketing and in the distribution and supply chain? What can they do to make sure that the product arrives at least to the Amazon DC in time and where they're learning about how to do direct advertising on Amazon in a way that is attributable today now that all of the iOS, <laughs> um, you know, the ramifications of not being able to target customers as thoroughly and creepily as as <laughs> people used to. Um, it makes, uh, you know, Amazon an interesting, a more interesting play for people who can do the arbitrage of uh, advertising well on that platform. Right. And then these aggregators can develop best practices that they can centralize and spread among the different brands that they acquire. and It might be like the new CPG company, right? Like right. CPG back in the day, consolidated brands and they consolidated operations and delivered to grocery stores in a more efficient way. Yeah, I think that's exactly how they're positioning some of these. I am struck by what you're doing with Athena as a SPAC that's looking for maybe a consumer product company and these aggregators, which, I mean, you're essentially doing the same thing, but at different levels. They're trying to bring in a bunch of different products and put them under one umbrella and get the efficiencies out of it. I mean, in some ways, I think that's the pitch of Athena, it seems like to a degree. It's like, hey, you're- Oh, no, dude. No, I'm wrong. (laughs) Yeah, correct him. Correct him, Jane. Because this is a good point of clarification. (laughs) Totally wrong. Totally wrong. We're going to find one amazing find company. One versus 20, I'm going to find but- one amazing company that wants to access capital in a different way, is ready for its next stage of growth. We're not trying to put together a bunch of companies and squeeze the back end costs out of it. Really, it's shepherding a company. All right, let's take a quick break here. Coming up next, we'll dive into the future of retail with Jane Park. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. You're listening to GeekWire, and our guest this week is Seattle-based entrepreneur, Jane Park. So, Jane, you have a a ton of experience in consumer retail, as I said. Um, What is the exciting arenas that you think you would, like, where's the innovation? Where's the creative and cool stuff that you would be interested in getting involved? There are so many companies out there. What I love is when there is a strong management team with a record of growth and they are taking their lens and focus to a new channel. So maybe that is a B2B company that is opening up a B2C channel and we can believe in that growth story because of how they've executed in the past. It's so funny how everybody always says that it's the team, but then when you go to think about IPOs or even investments, a lot of venture investors, private equity, uh, that it is not as much about focus on the team, right? Uh, I think it's all about the team. I want to do this over and over again and be able to be helpful to entrepreneurs, even the companies so far um, that have, you know, I don't want to say like turned us down, but I've already made some calls. And it's funny, the more that you do, the more you open yourself up to rejection, right? Because we only need one, but going out there and, you know, oh, we're not ready yet. Oh, we don't want to do a SPAC. Oh, we're raising our Series D. Um, So there's a lot of reasons why they might not want to pursue a conversation with us. So I'm just getting my rejection hat back on (laughs) to... The polite declines. Yeah. That's right. You know, it's it's interesting because we did see this 
absolute boom in SPACs, which has continued. And there are more than 500 active SPACs right now looking for targets of which you're one. And so there's a lot of competition. How how challenging is it to find quality companies uh, with all that competition in the SPAC market? Well, there are still over 100 consumer companies just in consumer alone that have a market cap over a billion that have not gone public. So there is a, a backlog on the consumer side. And, you know, not every SPAC team is the same. In fact, very few. I don't know the percentage, but I haven't come across any with our operator background. We do know that typically the ones that have taken a company public that operator-run SPACs are performing at 2x what non-operator SPACs do. And we're in this to kind of do it over and over again. So the strong management team is going to be a key focus for us. What are the chances, if you can say, that you do continue on with the company that gets acquired? Is, is that a possibility at least? Or would you just be the CEO during this period of searching for the potential acquisition? Typically, what happens is that we're looking for a fantastic management team who's been knocking it out of the park before they ever met us. And we can be helpful in doing this transaction in a really operationally excellent way to execute it flawlessly because we've been through it before and because of the team of people that we have behind us. And then if they are interested in having one of us as a board member, there's an automatic diverse group of women and incredible operators that they could choose from. But it really is up to the company. And this is not the way that we're doing our job search. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's really about finding a great company and helping them achieve their next milestone in a way that causes as little brain damage as possible. Jane, your experience going back to Julep Beauty was really interesting. And there was a great overall in-depth story that our colleague Taylor Soper wrote a few years ago about your whole journey with that. And one of the things you said in that story was it was just amazing. You, you got to four physical stores and then you launched this big online beauty brand. What are your thoughts on that intersection with physical retail and online brands and online stores. Has it changed long-term as a result of the pandemic? Are physical stores going to be different? Are they going to interact differently with online stores? I'd just be curious for your overall thoughts on that whole area, since you have such an interesting experience there. Yeah, I think there's a lot that has changed where we're not going to go back, right? But there's also, we are people and we like seeing people. <laughs> right. uh, and, uh, and, and so I think there is a place for stores always. Um, I'm a strong proponent of omni-channel. There is something that you can't get when you are building a consumer brand. There's something you can't get if you do not interact with people face-to-face. -face. That uh, I think that's why all of these online first brands like Warby Parker or, you know, Rent the Runway end up opening storefronts too, so that they have a deeper relationship with at least some subset of consumers who can help spread that love to others. There has to be something real and something anchored 
somewhere. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, some of us have been waiting our whole lives, like Jen Carsmith um, and I were talking about how when she was doing Peapod and at drugstore.com in Seattle a while, you know, uh, a little while ago, like, oh, God, I keep going back to Don Johnson, don't I? <laughs> but, uh, that wasn't you know, the 80s. Drugstore.com was, was not the 80s. That was, I can, that was after I can confirm that. that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we were, we've been waiting for, um, for order online pickup in store forever. We've been talking about this and now it's actually really happening. So how is a store also a distribution center? Um, you know, I, there are so many different purposes that a physical location can serve. I think its primary purpose of only driving sales is now, you know, I think it's got to be a lot more multifaceted than that to justify the investment in a brick and mortar building. Jane, we had Jason Stouffer of Maveron on the podcast uh, a few months back. I know Maveron was an investor in, in yeah, Julep. Yeah, Jason was and, on our board. <laughs> yeah, and I know you know Jason. And we got into this fascinating conversation talking about building a retail brand, a consumer brand, in this day and age. And what I, I've stuck with me to this day about how challenging it is based on the polarization of our country. And, you know, basically there's red brands and blue brands now. And I'm curious, like, as you're thinking about going and purchasing a company, how much that plays into your calculus of their mission beyond, you know, I guess it's not a political mission, but who they're speaking to as a customer base, because it seems like gosh, you're on one side or the other now, even with the products you're choosing. And I'm curious how you're thinking about that. That's interesting. I haven't really thought about it in that way and the map and the polarization piece. I do think that missions, mission-driven companies are a big plus. I think back in the day, (laughs) uh, you could have had very red state type agencies that worked on poverty alongside organizations that might share different political beliefs. Uh, I think that's a lot because of, you know, social media and all the things that we heard on (laughs) the Facebook hearings recently and et cetera, that, uh, that the, the fabric of being able to talk across these communities is it's unraveling. It's scary, isn't it? I mean, from a business standpoint, it seems really challenging that you got to think about it in those terms. Yeah, I think so. Complete random pivot, but I just read one of the most important books I've ever read in my life, which is called 4,000 Weeks. And the idea behind it is that you only have 4,000 weeks. <laughs> and so uh, part of the freedom of it, I'm not going to do it justice, but what really resonated with me is how you operate with strength at the end of hope. So giving up hope is the beginning of the beginning. So uh, as an entrepreneur, you know, I once took a personality test that said I was some higher level of optimistic than the average person. And I looked at the grader and I said, oh, like, that's not so bad. I'm a 10. And this is like the average is a seven and or something. And he was like, no, this is a logarithmic scale, Jane, like you are not even in this room. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so to go from somebody who's like that to sort of, uh, yeah, we, I, I take all the things that you're saying very seriously and to heart. I have started traveling to states before every election to do poll watching. So this is a nonpartisan thing where you're just trying to make sure that people can uh, actually vote and that they're, uh, that the lines are not too long, the ballots show up, all the problems that I've seen in Alabama, Michigan. Uh, I, I can't go this time to Virginia, which is where I was going to go because of uh, going to New York to ring the bell, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> which is also a very fun and important and once in a lifetime thing. But yeah, that is to say I am more committed in my time and effort than ever before to try to hold space for conversations. I've thought about what could I do as a mom, as a woman to be reaching out to kind of create communities of trust. But there is no easy answer to what's happening in the country. Jane, that book that you referenced is by Oliver Berkman, and this is for John. There's a podcast about it on NPR Life Kit that I listened to recently. John's not a, John reads, John reads a lot. He's just not a book reader. And that's why John, whenever John tells people he doesn't read books, I go, don't say that. People, that there's implications of that. I'll put on a podcast and listen to it as I walk across the city. Oh, you got to listen to the audiobook. He's got a cute British accent. Oh, perfect. <laughs> perfect. Well, and if even before that, the Life Kit episode, I heard it a couple of weeks ago. And it's fascinating to think about life that way. 4,000 weeks, it's something you can wrap your mind around. And that's the whole point. And, and it's just like life truly is short. Jane, we referenced at the beginning your involvement with the Washington State Opportunity Scholarship. You're on the board. They're having their Opportunity Talks breakfast on November 9th. Roz Brewer with Walgreens, the former Starbucks exec, is the keynote speaker there, and we'll link to that from the show notes. Tell us about WSOS, the Washington State Opportunity Scholarship, and what you've seen and learned through your involvement in that organization. I love this organization so much because it is all of the right things in terms of heart, but also huge impact that can be quantified. So the level at which WSOS scholars graduate is significantly higher than their counterparts without the scholarship. And that's not just the money. Uh, one thing that the organization realized early on is that a lot of these first generation students need other forms of support, need uh, understanding um, around sort of how to operate in this college environment, how to interview for internships, how to think about their post uh, their post college lives. And we really are changing lives. When you look at the average income of an opportunity scholar, it's like double what their family's income was before they entered college and got the scholarship. But the other important thing is that as a employer in Washington state, I'm really excited that this is about supporting our economy in the long run too. So that's a super win. So much so that the legislature is supporting private donations to WSOS with a one-to-one -one match, right? This is unprecedented. There is nothing else like this. And from what I can see as a board member, it feels like every time we turn around, there's another program that we're asked to help with, which is because of the effectiveness of the team in reaching students, in finding the future of Washington, really. So I love the fact that we're doing that at the state level. There's so many things that 
are hard to grok when you're thinking nationally and internationally, even the SPAC and thinking about the next great company can have national and international sort of ramifications. This is about our state and trying to, you know, like make our state great. That's a, a size and a population and a group of people. Like we're all only several degrees of separation removed when we take it down to that kind of geography. So it's been great to see that we've had scholars from every single county in the state. This is something that, you know, we care about a lot. I'm also uh, newly sort of uh, really passionate about opportunities in Eastern Washington. Um, actually, Toki's headquarters are in Spokane. <laughs> wow. So wow. bringing jobs to Eastern Washington. <laughs> and we should say the Washington State Opportunity Scholarship focuses on low and middle income students and it has a particular focus on women and people of color. And so it really ties into a lot of the themes that we've been talking about here. Right. The scholarship, I should have said that part. Yes, you did it beautifully, but it is about um, giving low-income kids a shot at STEM careers that transform the state. It's pulling all of those things together. And it truly is a unique private-public partnership. And as we said, trying to drive more STEM education and driving more kids into, into STEM Jane, where are we at on that? I mean, Microsoft had their diversity uh, report they released here relatively recently. And, you know, I, I mean, I guess it's, it's bumping up, but it's not at levels of, of equality by any means. So where do you think we're at and what's it going to take to really break through? It is a long, hard slog. <laughs> uh, when, you know, as we start looking at the college piece, uh, you pretty quickly get pulled into looking at high school and then at uh, elementary school education. It goes all the way up the chain, right? Even in what I was describing as only 2% of venture funds go to women-run companies. So the different... Uh, levels of equality and um, the, the fights we have to fight are, they're complex. Um, I think what I break it down to is, can I find a way that I can contribute where I feel really strongly about seeing the impact? And so that's, you know, where I view that as a, a why I'm so passionate about WSOS. But it's going to take a lot of us working really hard. And so whatever it is in your backyard, in your community, if you want to play at the national level, I think we've all got to get involved and do what we can to help the next generation become educated. Yeah. So to bring this full circle, I think when we hit true success is when we have a WSOS scholar who starts a company. <laughs> and then she ends up selling to Athena and you take that company public. So yes. that would be awesome, right? I love that dream. <laughs> there you go. This is great, Jane. We are so glad to be able to catch up with you. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you and your team do, what company you acquire. It's going to be fun to watch, especially now that we have all this background. Oh, by the way, if you come yeah. join us on our brunch for WSOS, which I hope will be in the link somewhere, but you can yes. also just go to WashingtonStateOpportunityScholarship.org. But um, I'm going to be in like a million different outfits. So I thought you were going to say, I can't wait to see what. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. 
You're doing, you're doing wardrobe changes during this during this event. I mean, I I have to tell you, I really love this organization. <laughs> That's awesome. We, we should say it's it's November 9th at eight a.m. to nine a.m. All virtual, correct? This year? Yes, Same? yes. I hope right. we'll be in person next year, but this year it's all virtual, so it's open to everybody. So make sure you sign up and donate. It is truly a fantastic organization. So Jane, my last pitch to you, I would like to put in my vote for after you go through the whole process with Athena that you write your book. <laughs> that essay, I was telling John, I would read 12 chapters of that essay that you oh, wrote about your mom. Thank you so much. That is really meaningful. Making time to write has been uh, something that I've been trying to prioritize amongst all the other things because we only have 4,000 weeks. Well, Jane Park, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everybody. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com and sign up for our daily email newsletter to receive all of our stories. Our podcast producer is Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. We'll talk to you next time on GeekWire.